Hello, Jack. How you doing? I am fantastic. How about yourself? I am excellent today. It's a wonderful, wonderful day, Adam, as always. Yes, it is. And we're excited to be here. We're excited to do another podcast. And uh, as we've we've done now, um, as we're getting back into the swing of things here with having some guests on now, that we, you know, after being in studio with guests you know, for years, we're now doing it uh, more so with our our podcast as well. So we're excited today to uh, to bring out a very interesting guest, uh, Ross Youngs uh, with Biosortia. And uh, as we get into this, we're, we're going to have Ross kind of share some of his stories and everything with us as well. And, and we'll finish up with where he's at. If I'm pronouncing it correctly, Biosortia Microbiomics, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a tongue twister, but it... it it's a tongue twister. We use Biosortia and uh, Microbiomics is what we do. Okay, got it. All right. So with, with Biosortia, we'll get into that um, uh, here shortly. But uh, as, we, as we come on here, uh, Ross, what we, we always find helpful is, is uh, give our, our guests just a quick little background about you, you know, you know, give us some details like, you know, kind of where you grew up and your education and and, and, and kind of your experience before you, you know, you got the Biosortia. So why don't, why don't we start there? No, that sounds fantastic. Fantastic. So um, I've had the opportunity to do a wide variety of things, but if you go back a long ways, I've lived in Ohio, I've lived in Arkansas, Indiana, Florida, and Ohio, but I've spent enough time out in California and Seattle and uh, Reno, Nevada area, and even Dublin, Ireland, that I feel like uh, I've been involved in a lot of things. And those were businesses and business locations uh, at one point or another, even though I didn't live there full time. But my background's environmental science, uh, Florida Institute of Technology, and industrial engineering, uh, Purdue uh, University, basically IUPUI, Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Um, I'm one of those guys that never finished my bachelor's degree in engineering uh, and then went on uh, to do some really interesting things. Initially, I got involved in the medical imaging business, uh, and then I got involved in the video and optical disc business. Uh, in the video and optical disc business, I moved my way through uh, product assurance, uh, quality assurance, data analyst. Uh, and then into the technology realm, because of my background in medical imaging, I worked for engineering and manufacturing. Ultimately, uh, did very well there, moved on to the first compact disc replication facility in the U.S. that was privately owned and helped turn a cornfield into a disc manufacturing facility. And even though I never finished that engineering degree, I was senior process engineer for about three months at that operation before getting promoted to head of engineering and about a 35 person staff. Ultimately, I started my own company because I've been inventing products and inventing technologies for other people for years, probably about eight years. And I decided to try to invent some things on my own. Oh, and, oh do you mind if we interrupt from time to time? Absolutely. I hope you would, Jack, because I'll just oh, uh, talk like crazy. <laughs> I know you're good, but what you, what you talk about is is so interesting. How old were you then when when at this position with 35 people? Uh, believe it or not, I was only 24 years old. Holy crap! Good for you. <laughs> and 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 I think it was interesting because I had a number of engineers that even had their master's degree, and they were working for me and. I've always been a believer in building a, a uh, high-performing team. So everyone was involved, and I created a fearless environment where no one had any problem saying what they thought. It put us in a position to solve problems and uh, move forward rapidly. All right, okay. so, you had a, so that's good. So you, you had some good experience early on. You said about eight years in of doing stuff for somebody else. You said, hey, wait a minute. I'm doing this for all, why can't I do this thing for me, right? So what, at a right young age, about 30 years old, you decided to kind of do your own things? or that's That, about that was about the age I decided to do my own thing and uh, decided to invent a better product than what I saw in the marketplace. So my first invention that really I did for myself was I came up with a alternative to the compact disc jewel box, mostly with my environmental background, I wanted to reduce the amount of packaging and make it more environmentally friendly. And what I came up with, which I'm sure everyone has seen, is the sleeve type packaging 
with a non-woven fabric on the inside to protect the optical surface and then a plastic outside so you still had visibility. It, it reduced the plastic content by 93%. And at that time, I just knew it was a better product in protection and also in cost. What I found out rather quickly is a lot of people were mailing discs all over the US, all over the world, and it would reduce the packaging mailing cost from a buck 21 down to 49 cents at the time. So my package actually saved an enormous amount of money. We got picked up early by the record industry. We got picked up early uh, by the CD-ROM industry. Virtually every computer company from Microsoft to Apple to Dell to HP to IBM, uh, Gateway, were all using our products to move their disk. And, and that, that allowed our company to hit the Inc. 500 for five years in a row. Uh, so we had really rapid growth. I think, uh, well, I know we're in the Inc. Hall of Fame, but at the time um, I last checked, there were only 88 companies in the Inc. Hall of Fame that had at least five years uh, on the Inc. 500. What an accomplishment. You know, we love ink. Uh, that, that's that's the, the the Bible for small business for sure. But to hit the Hall of Fame seems to be quite an accomplishment, to say the least. Yeah, you have to be elated to, to hit that. We, we were elated. We were very happy. Well, it's, it's fantastic. As you're, as you're talking about the, 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 the CDs and the cases and everything else, I'm thinking back to, yeah, I mean, the, um, uh, who was it? Was it who was the mail-in? Was it Columbia? That you, you know, you'd mail stuff in and they, yeah, they'd send you stuff every, you know, every year. Or then you, your point, you go to when computers first started happening, we'd all have these folders full of disks, right? And of course, hey, we got to load this disk here and there. And when they finally transitioned to where, yeah, your point, where, yeah, they're, they're these sleeves. Or you know Netflix in, in, their, in their early days, right? They're, they're mailing those, those envelopes, right? It's all and these guess who of, they used? Right. Okay. Right. I say so. They, they used our product <laughs> initially, and I went out to Netflix in Silicon Valley, uh, probably their first year of startup, uh, and they had just moved from their first location to their second location, and I would say it was no bigger than ten thousand square foot. And I was talking to them about how to automate everything, how to uh, uh, read each disk put barcodes on them, match them to mailing, match them to stuff. Now, we didn't get that contract, but we had the technical capability at the time to handle everything in an automated fashion. And, uh, uh, of course, at that time, it was you have to pay us to do it. And they were in the stage where, no, we need you to do it for free, and then we'll pay you when it works. And I couldn't do that because we were a small business. Right. Yeah, those big guys sometimes will, will try to put terms on it that just don't quite make sense like that. But uh, it's, it's fascinating. Again, you know, so you know, being involved with this product, I mean, it's a product that, again, pretty much almost everybody who's listening has, you know, has touched, right? You know, so that's Well, and that's, if you've got AOL mailings at the right. time, <laughs> you've got a lot of our yeah. product. <laughs> that's right. That was, that was almost every other week there was, a, there was a new CD coming from, you know, in the mail. You're right. Uh, Wow. Big time flashbacks to those. So, okay. So that was your, did you produce these or did you outsource? Um, We actually had and designed a piece of equipment that would make the mailer, put the disc in it, put graphics in it and spit it out the other end ready to be mailed. So we would receive their disc in-house. And I think at one point we had 29 machines in-house uh, that could do this. And you, you would see eight of those machines just dedicated to AOL for a while. <laughs> 24 yeah, hours a day, day, seven wow. days a week at times. <laughs> Amazing. So, okay. So that was your first, that was your first venture into it. Again, you know, not too bad. Okay. Your point here, here we are, you know, several years in, you, you know, hit the Inc. Hall of Fame. So this is when we were preparing. You had mentioned that you you had gotten an investment for one hundred sixty thousand bucks. You turned into like four hundred thirty million in sales. Was that this business? That was this business. Okay, yeah. so, so so let me say those numbers again, folks. One hundred sixty thousand investment 
turned into 430 million in sales. So that's a, that's a, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good return on that, that investment. Beats a, that beats a CD today, that's for sure, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Very so, good. So, Very so, good. so so what happened to that business? So, so, so you, you started it, you grew it, you're running it. So what happened to it? It's become our launching platform for everything else. So okay. those initial four investors into Univenture, they've had every opportunity to exit. They did get dividends over the years to pay back for their whole investment. And they basically said, no, this is too fun of a ride. Uh, we've bet on you. We're going to keep betting on you. So I've continued. One of the things everyone in the world knows and every listener knows, the CD industry and the CD-ROM industry went like that. And it went like that. So the real challenge of any business is look at what kind of products or product platform you have and understand its longevity could be limited. So the curve of growth, rapid growth, stability, cash cow, and then decrease was a real reality in the CD market that we started with. Uh, there was a point in time 100% of our sales was that product. And at that point, I started to worry and said, okay, well, we better come up with some other things. So we started looking at what other things could we do that were related to the industry and related to opportunities. So that initial invention turned into more than 600 SKUs. So it was indeed a type of platform. So what we started to do is talking to our customers, what else do you need? And one of the things that we knew they were doing is they were selling multiple CDs in packaging. Um, so initially one CD may have handled a software offering. I'll give you an example. When we started to work with Microsoft's, uh, Microsoft's developer network program back in 1991, it was six CDs. It rapidly turned into 8, 12, 24, ultimately 40. So, and that was before they could distribute this massive information over the internet. So we had to come up with different versions of packaging for them. And one of the things I saw out of all those types of versions was an opportunity again to make it better. And my philosophy has evolved to better, faster, cheaper, or differentiated. I don't want to be a commodity supplier. I want something very differentiated about my products or they've got to be that better, faster or cheaper. So one of the things we did on the sleeve side is we made the automation equipment itself. And that allowed us to control the actual production of it, even in their facility. So we ended up giving CD replicators around the world equipment for free. And then we paid to bring the material in there. Then we paid to train their labor. We paid for all the maintenance. So they had nothing to pay for. All they had to do is provide space. And then as it ran, a good product came off. Then they paid for us. So it goes back to that early 60s, maybe late 50s Xerox model of here's a machine, pay us for each one you produce. And we would put a $350,000 piece of equipment on the floor of, let's say, Sony or Sanyo or Philips. We would put that right on their floor and then only get paid if they ran it. Ultimately, it was a brilliant move for us. And that strategy paid off because we could pay for equipment if they ran it substantially in that first year. In fact, we could generate more than a million dollars per year off one piece of equipment with very high margins. Now, with that industry all gone, I can talk about it historically, but at the time we were pretty tight-lipped about how well we were doing in that particular market. But it also tied them to us. Who else would have put a piece of equipment for free on a disc manufacturer. Oh, that's, that's tremendous. You have the wherewithal and the courage to do it. So that's uh, good for you. Yeah, and then we became standardized and becoming standardized allowed me to invent something else, which was a way to hold those sleeves. So eventually I created the first injection molded loose leaf binder where the binding itself 
was part of the injection molding. And then it gave the flexibility of allowing customization of the graphics. And that would allow my sleeves to go inside and it to be able to be a really nice product, not only for sale at retail, but for distribution through those that needed to distribute multiple discs. Now today, even though the CD industry is basically on its knees, uh, still decreasing, you could go into any library and find three different versions of this product made by different, well, uh, branded by different manufacturers. All of them are our product. Um, now, where is their leverage in something like this invention? Again, I like, I like leverage. So how about larger units? Uh, so on Amazon right now, we have hundreds of products that are organizers using this technology for the ring, but we also can put metal rings in it. But the advantage for a loose leaf binder or for an organizational product or for a publishing or distribution product, it's all enclosed. It's, it will stack. There's advantages to a product like this. It's made in a single cycle of an injection molded press. It can be decorated beautifully. So that's one of the things that we evolved to make. Now, the other thing is I can show you this product and you can see in the right light that the welds of plastic to plastic create deformation. And if you look even at my sleeves, which I got to admit are beautiful, you see, if I can get it in the right light, eh, let's put it like this. You can see that even our welds, as smooth as they are, they're deformed. So being that kind of guy that looks for better, faster, cheaper, I said to myself, if you're deforming a weld, you're probably putting too much energy in it. And the three basic technologies for welding plastics are thermal, where you drive the heat through it and it melts in the middle. You definitely deform it. Ultrasonic, which vibrates it and it exchanges the information at the middle. So it vibrates so fast that it welds. Or microwave, a high frequency, same thing. That uses a certain type of plastic and it moves the molecules at that point and welds it. And I basically asked myself, how could you do something in welding plastics that again, takes just the energy to bond it? We ultimately made a product like that. And that was another one of our inventions. We call that EnvyPack. The, the core technology we call dark weld, but EnvyPack, E-N-V-Y-P-A-K is, you can go to Amazon, you'll find hundreds of products out, made out of EnvyPack. But the welds of the EnvyPacks are so smooth, so flat, that it's also used as the only plastic envelope. And again, we can make plastics out of sustainable plastics, bio-based plastics, but it's the only envelope in the world that runs through the US post office at the same price as paper. Hmm. So we can run through all their automation effectively. But it was this technology that helped us along with this technology as our sales of our CD products were going down, our sales of our two new technology products were going up. So our future is based on prod projects that should have much longer lives to them. And that's the direct mail industry, consumer and business products for organization, handling, uh, storage of information, um, and, and that's where we have some of our growth occurring right now because our CD market has dropped by more than 95%. So we've lost a lot of sales in the CD area as we have grown sales in other new areas. It's amazing. So as you're, as you're kind of sharing some of the stories, a lot of stuff, a lot of good stuff in here, Ross. So one of the things is you're talking about, you know, having that first product gave you access to your customers, right? And the chance to kind of come in with your customers and start to, to, to be able to kind of pick their brains. And that's one of the terms that we often use as small business owners. We talk about doing some market research, right? Mm -hmm. And we often get that kind of deer in headlight. What the heck are you talking about, right? 
So this is a, that's a great example of some, some some primary market research you're able to do because you you have that relationship with the customer to kind of talk to them about it. And so the fact that your mind's working that way in terms of you know uh, you be able to see opportunities like that, but it's it, it's doing with them and it, it, it's creating opportunity not to just create something because it's neat, right? It's a cool thing. It's no, it's creating something that that's going to be used, right? That there, there's a market for that, right? So. Uh, too many times we see folks, you know, creating interesting things because they're interesting things, but it's like there's not necessarily a market or a business for that. And you seem to do a good job of melding the two about things that you're interested in, but also, hey, let's make sure it's going to become uh, marketable and, and saleable too to be, you know, to, to be a product. So it's it's key to kind of keep that in mind. I think it's, it's one of the keys for your success was again engaging customers like that, being able to listen to them. And it was funny, you know, one of the articles that, that Jack's quoted a number of times over the years, there's an article probably eight, eight, 10 years ago in, in the Wall Street Journal, and they were interviewing the, the Netflix CEO. And they just had like, you know, record profits, record year, everything was going. This is still back when they were doing the, you know, mailing the, mailing the CDs. And you're, you're, you're reading the interview with the guy, and it's not like the, the world's crashing in inside him. He's like, no, I'm worried about this and all these other things, like, you know, like, like things are going to be terrible, right? And so, because, you know, I think much like you were talking about, you, you could see where things were, were, were going. He was seeing the streaming things happening. Hey, we have to change our model, you know? And so to your point, it, it's, I think it's difficult for, 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 for many of us as we see that, as you mentioned, that, that slope up. Hey, things are going great and, 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 and things are selling well or doing great. Well, it's hard to, to look at when's it going to go down. And, you know, to your point, is it going to start to go down uh, next month, next year, 10 years? I don't know. But at some point, it's going to, yeah, it's going to start to kind of go down. And so what are we doing to prepare for that to kind of, you know, to kind of, to kind of plug those gaps? So it's not like you've been very good at staying ahead of those things, um, and, you know, you know and, and be able to kind of maximize. Again, you still have 5% of those sales for, for, for the CDs. So it's still there. And it's probably, they're probably paying well. I'm sure you're making money on it. So that's great. Um, yeah. to be able to feel that, that. So. And, and there is a there is a chain of custody of how you get from here to here to here. And yeah. that is the first and most important thing we ever did was those first products had the quality, had the delivery, met the needs of the customer. We built a tremendous amount of goodwill and respect by all of these customers. And we valued those relationships to make sure we did not screw up. That set us up for the next opportunity to ask them, what is it we can do for you that is not getting done? Or what can we do to make our product better? And then you've got to go to that next step, which is actually meet that new need or bring some kind of solution to them. I can tell you one of the biggest projects we ever got we got a call like on a, it was a Wednesday night from one of the major, let's say top five companies in the world today. And they said, we need a way to do this. We ended up working through the night, made prototypes that we could send to them. They were all handmade prototypes, put it in the FedEx. It was in their hands by Friday morning before their meeting. And they selected that product. And that product ended up turning out to be well more than $15 million in sales because we reacted so quick and they had the confidence to ask us. Another major time, and this was a Japanese company, they paid a design company $100,000 to come up with multiple designs for a product they wanted to distribute in retail. Again, a week before that meeting, they called us up and said, what would you suggest? And then they invited us to the meeting to do a presentation of what we would suggest. After they paid this other firm $100,000, we were in the same meeting to do a presentation side by side to them and our services were completely free. They selected us. Ultimately, that was $6 million in packaging sales that we'd have never had, except for they had the trust and faith to call us up and say, what can you do here? And that those were brilliant opportunities that lead to how you can leverage future products. And like I said, I love platforms. The CD sleeve was a platform. The Unikeep binders are a platform. The EnvyPack products are a platform. I can make a lot of different products. And I love that. I really despise one product, period, personally. I, I see no leverage in that because it is so hard to get that first product perfect and right. And it's easier to be able to adapt. 
and adapt to customers' needs. Well, you got you have so many ideas. You know, you know, we always have fun getting inside of, of, of minds like yours a little bit because you know it's fun, but it can also be kind of scary at times because you know in terms of how you see the world and just the, the different ideas kind of bouncing around. But one of the things that you mentioned during our during our prep for this, you talked about you know one of your lessons and one of the secrets to your success was learning how to stay disciplined versus kind of bouncing around. So can you talk about that a little bit in terms of maybe you have some stories to share in terms of where that kind of hits you in terms of maybe where that bouncing around didn't do so well versus staying focused. It's a common challenge, I think, for, for many entrepreneurs, Ross, is, is to kind of stay focused. They have that shiny object. Oh, look at that squirrel. You know, get, get, get distracted real quickly. And in today's day and age, there are a lot of rabbit holes that go down that, that, that aren't necessarily good. So you talk a little bit about that in terms of, you know, how you do that to be able to kind of stay disciplined and not get distracted. Maybe some stories of where that's kind of happened with you. Yeah, well, I, I think one of the things about that is, is again, the team environment, you can leverage the people that you work around. And hopefully, you don't, uh, let's say, create groupthink, you, you, you create a real independence in thought. And the, the first way you create that independence in thought is you have a safe environment. I mean, I don't want anyone thinking they can't say something out loud to me. It's absolutely critical that they know they can say anything to me like they could to anybody else. Um, and that allows honesty in that environment. If I was a dictator and I said, this is what I think, I don't need to have 10 sheep around me going, we think what you think. And I think that's critical. So staying focused is part of a team effort too. So have we made mistakes and gotten onto products that didn't pan out? Absolutely. And I would, I would say if you're not taking a little bit of risk, you're kind of foolish on looking at opportunities because everything we have done has been a level of risk where we didn't understand, was it going to work? But that's where the platform comes in. The other thing that I like to look at is the market itself. Is this market that we're playing in with these new products or these new platforms opportunistic? Can it grow? And I love the idea that if you get into a growing market and serve that market successfully, it is really hard to screw up. And when you talk about this focus, you've got to understand where your sweet spot is. And that's why we use strategy to help tell us what we should be doing and we shouldn't be doing. That helps control the focus. Would I want to all of a sudden create an electronic device and sell it you know, to consumers? Well, we've never done that. That would be a new business. That's not the business we're in. And an example of that is we created a technology specifically for getting to environmentally friendly plastics. Now, this technology allowed us to use biomass from the natural environment to accumulate, to potentially convert that into plastics, chemistry, fuels, things like that. The technology we invented was very unique. It met a specific need. We were playing with it for the opportunity in plastics, but like so many advancing technologies, they can pivot. That particular technology ended up getting funded by ARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency of the DOE, follow-on funding by DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and then even more funding by the U.S. Air Force Research Lab. It was initially for biofuels and biochemicals. Today, we pivoted that technology. We spun that company out. That company is called Biosortia. And since it didn't fit in our core competency at the time, we wanted to separate it out. It was justifiable to separate it out. Now that technology is still at its inception, but it's ultimately now completely proven at scale for discovery of therapeutic molecules, agrochemical molecules, cosmetic molecules, sustainability, longevity, advanced energy. So it really fits the entire segment of life sciences. And that company is standing alone, even though Univenture is continuing to make investments in it, we keep them as separate as possible in order for our team 
over at Univenture, which does those products and does those technologies completely focused on what it does. So I can't say that a disfocus is totally bad, but I can say staying focused is really good. <laughs> and so you're touching on keep that strategy, that, that big picture, to your point, everybody on the same page, big picture wise, and know here's what we're looking for. And, and yeah, there are opportunities other places, but again, is that what, what we're really good at? So part of that strategy is saying, hey, what do we like in terms of big picture markets, but also what are we good at? What are we capable of doing? Right. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's tough um, to start a company. Um, and I think all the statistics show that it is. And I have had some great experience in seeing others start companies. Either I worked for them or I worked close to them. And I saw what disfocus can do in uh, achieving a goal and objective. Um, sometimes an entrepreneur will scramble like crazy because they've not been able to drive the revenue they need in their core business. So then they start thinking about this and they start thinking about this. More power to them for thinking about it, but starting down the pathway of execution always takes time, effort, money, and something suffers. So you've got to start with that really good sustainable business model. Do all your homework, do all your testing. Don't just get into a situation where you're scatterballing your business model. If you're scatterballing your business model, you've got a big problem and you're probably not going to succeed. It's okay to have a little bit of, let's say, scatterballing in the business. All entrepreneurs, all startups, are doing things from taking out the trash to packing up boxes to doing their marketing. That's different than scatterballing a business model. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. You know, to get things started like that is very, very true, Ross. And you know, throw things out there and see what kind of sticks. But once you start to kind of figure out what you're good at, how things kind of go, to your point, let's kind of now let's build on those things, right? You know, because often you don't know what you're necessarily good at or what the market you know values until you, you get some of those things out there so to your point you guys found some of that thing that's kind of then build upon that thing and, and, and to see how we can kind of grow in there because we have our foothold in there let's kind of grow and yeah as you're describing if people make a case for something else okay that's let's put that as a separate business over here we, we, we do that separately here maybe it's a different team uh, you know in terms of what's kind of going on um, and, and one of the things I've seen, because I've made a number of investments, I think 40 some investments into startup companies. One of the things that'll bother me is the, the founder that'll say, I'm the idea guy. Okay, well, you better quickly learn how to be the operations guy. You better quickly learn about sales, about marketing, about accounting. If you're going to do this on a shoestring, which I recommend any business do, their startup on a shoestring, um, then do it so that you start to understanding the key things that are going on. I think that can be lifelong education that helps you do something next and next and next. If you end up with a pocket of money to start a business and you create a business plan that you're going to spend this money, typically they'll do that but they won't hit their goals and objectives. Therefore, now they're going, how do I survive? And I've seen that more than anything. So, so you're, you're saying spend the time, not necessarily the money, but the, the shoestring budget. Hey, don't be throwing dollars at certain things versus until you understand that those things are worthy of putting dollars towards. And to, so you use the entrepreneur, understand what the key parts are, and you got to spend the time to do that versus just say, hey, we'll throw some money at it. And I, I couldn't agree more. It's, you know, um, yeah, I spent enough time in Wall Street, you know, the first part of my career. And your point, people like, you know, part of that was during the dot-com boom, right? And it was, well, who can spend it faster? Well, we can spend it faster. They're like, wait a minute. The goal here is to, to keep spending all those dollars, right? Or it's, it's often, you know, as we talk about the, the government mindset with, with, with the budget, right? You, you, you got to spend your budget or else you aren't going to get it. So wait a minute. That's, it's a totally, totally contrary to what we're talking about from, from an entrepreneur standpoint. Let's make sure that, yeah, we, we don't waste a bunch of money. We spend some time doing stuff. And then, yeah, once you find what, what the key thing is, then that's where you start to invest the time and the, and the money and, the, and kind of going forward. So... Um, how, do you, how do you do your how do you do your marketing in, in, in these strategic uh, uh, moves evaluating next move well we we've seen we've seen a real evolution to how we do marketing so initially when we were in the CD field it was a very narrow very focused opportunity to get to those customers 
we would go to trade shows. We would we would advertise in trade magazines. That was great because it really allowed us to focus and then find people. Um, today, being a little broader, we have to depend on our product reviews on places like Amazon, Walmart, eBay, um, and we have to make sure that every product we get out there ends up getting five-star reviews. Now, we can't control that, nor would we try to control that, other than our activities of being a great product producer and supplier. Leverage these days in, in a lot of what we do is based on how good our products are received by our customers, whether they're consumers or whether they're in the industry or whether they're the customers of those that are in the industry. So we've got to stay on top of being competitive. And that again, falls back to that better, faster, cheaper, or differentiated. And if we can do that, we can see our business grow. And we've seen it grow even with our new product offerings as much as 30% a year in a particular category. So that's how we're doing it today. Do we do some advertising? Yes. Do we do marketing? Yes. But it is, it's either highly focused to an industry like the direct mail industry, or it's broadly focused to consumers trying to get their eyeballs on our products so they can see the reviews that we've got on a media site like Amazon or Walmart. Okay. Okay. So I want to come back. You mentioned about angel investing, right? So they, and we'll bounce around here. Sorry, a little bit, you know, because as you kind of progress now, and, you, and you've mentioned forty plus investments that you made, so I'm guessing you've seen hundreds, if not thousands, of opportunities. It sounds like over over the time. But as an angel investor, you know, what kind of stuff do you look for? What things are things that maybe made things like, hey, if, if I see these things, I'm throwing it in the garbage right away. Versus here are things that okay, this is something that, that makes you want to read a little bit more, kind of thing. You know, give us a little insight to that. Yeah, so I, I, I've invested in the idea and um, I've invested in the team. Um, okay. The idea and the team, the leverageability of that idea into other opportunities, because so often you hear that, oh, we had to pivot or, oh, we, we didn't know this when we started, so we were able to adjust. So I'm, I'm a big believer now through my own learning curve is first and foremost, the person that's running the organization. Are they committed? Are they uh, level-headed? Uh, do they have the variety of skills necessary to motivate a team uh, and to provide confidence to customers? Who is that individual and are they going to be able to do it? And are they going to be able to do it for the long-term? Because one of the things that I believe in, especially startups, um, I used to say this to business schools when I would be invited to talk is if you're an entrepreneur, plan on failing seven times. And I would say that because you're going to run into things during that early startup period that should put you out of business. And if you're truly an entrepreneur, you're going to figure out how to get right past that. If you're not, you may fold on the first one or you may fold on the fifth one, but you're going to get beat down time and time again, unless you had a really, let's call it lightning strike type of idea. Lightning strike types of ideas are rare. Overnight successes, from what I've learned, on average, take 10 years. <laughs> They're not overnight right. ever. Right, not at all. <laughs> I think I think Steve Case was quoted with that with AOL back in the day, right? He talked about that. Said so, you know he said overnight success. He goes, yeah, after you know ten or twelve years of grinding it out, where, 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 where nothing was working yet, all of a sudden it starts to pop, and everybody's attracted to that success, right? So right. When, when you're talking about these near death experiences, right, in terms of you know kind of failing like that, so you're 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 saying within not seven different companies, you're saying within the same company, you're saying because yeah, there's these these things that it might be a little a little roadblock, or it might be a little speed bump, or it might be a huge mountain that we have to kind of figure out how to, you know, how to get around or over or through or somehow like that. Right. But your point is saying, Hey, um, because whatever ideas we have in our head, as you start to get them out there into the world, okay, we didn't have all the answers right, to your point. And so as you're talking about the, 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 you know, when somebody's presenting you with the idea, you're thinking, okay, they're presenting me with this, this idea, but based on the knowledge you have, okay, where else could that kind of play into that? I know that, Hey, that if this initial idea hits a dead end, well, Hey, we can 
go here, here, here. We, we, we can shoot a bunch of different areas. So that it still has some legs from that standpoint versus going, no, we need to be exactly right. And if we're wrong, it's a dead end, right? So those are the ones that you're saying, hey, if, if I see that, I'm kind of, you know, nice to meet you, but kind of move on. So that's from the idea piece. And then you're saying you look very hard at the team, but you also mentioned kind of the, the person running it. So you, you, you're making the bet on the, on the jockey as much as the horse, it sounds like in terms of, you know, what's kind of going on. And so is that something that, 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 um, um, somebody had done for you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There, there actually was. And I, I, I learned that, uh, from, uh, a former professor at Ohio State's University of Marketing. Um, you know, when when we started to engage, I had really no idea of his history or his background. He walked up to me during one of my very first uh, investment presentations in December of 1988. And I thought he was probably trying to sell me services because I just had three accountants, four lawyers, three bankers come up to me and hand me cards and no investors. <laughs> and then he walked up to me and I picked up his card and it said marketing emeritus, Ohio State University. And it, he, he was a nice, very kind, well-spoken uh, older gentleman. And he said, let's get together sometime. And this was in, um, like I said, December of 88. So I had solved my major problem during that period of time. And that was one of those near-death experiences my initial supplier, because I outsourced, I didn't have the funding to make internally, I outsourced, they got busy and put my orders behind their key customers, which mean I couldn't deliver for the longest period of time and I was taking sales. So talk about a biggest disaster. So I ran out to investors and I said, I need to make this myself and I need this kind of money. And they looked at me and said, yeah, no. <laughs> but during that period of time, I did find another vendor and they were able to make my product for a couple of years before I did bring in my own equipment. So it did all work out. We got over that hurdle. But that one uh, investor that I originally met, who was that professor, he called me up in January after my problem was solved and said, can we get together and you know have lunch? And I said, why, sure. So we spent two, three hours that first meeting. He gave me all sorts of kind of advice on marketing and what I needed to do for branding. And at the end of it, it goes, so it was this great meeting with you again, Ross, let's, let's meet again. And uh, do you need anything? Let me know. Well, we, we had another meeting. He called me up out of the blue again in, in February. And he goes, let's get together. So we got back together. This time he brought a CEO of a major corporation from Columbus, Ohio to the meeting. And again, we sat for two to three hours talking about my little startup business. He was giving his time. He was giving the time of others. March, he did the same thing with another major CEO. In April, we got back together. And again, the same thing happened. In May, we got back together and it was just him. He spent a couple hours with me. And ultimately, he gave me all this advice. He's been giving me this advice for months. Uh, and even calling me occasionally to check in on me to find out how I was doing. Well, in that May meeting, we were sitting on my auction equipment because, you know, I subleased an area. Uh, I was doing a little bit of manufacturing, all the boxing, all the packaging. And we were sitting on these really dirt cheap tables and chairs. At the end of it, he got up and he started, you know, he, he said, as usual, let me know if you need anything. And he got up and he started walking away. And then he stopped, he turned around, he waddled back to my desk and spread his hands out and leaned forward and said, Ross, what I've been trying to tell you for five months is I'd like to invest in your company. <laughs> and I go, I go, okay. <laughs> so he was one of my, of the four first investors, he was one of the key investors. Uh, the rest of that story is obviously I continued to work with him. But I found out he said, on the board of directors of Philip Morris. He sat on the board of directors of The Limited. He had a tremendous history in uh, marketing and sales, but you know this was all pre-internet, so I didn't get a chance to do all this research, but highly respected supporter of entrepreneurs around Ohio. Uh, his name was W. Arthur Coleman, professor, and he passed away more than 20 years ago. 
But I did finally get to ask him, why me? Because, you know, he was making consulting fees in the 80s of more than $1,000 an hour. And here he was dedicating his time and effort to an entrepreneur. And he said, I always bet on the entrepreneur. He said, I don't really care what kind of business you had, you, you were doing. In fact, I know nothing about the business you're doing, but I know about your character. I know about your determination, your tenacity to achieve. He goes, I bet on you. And I, I, that's a, impacted me my entire life. That's a, or something that's, like that sure would. That's a good story. That's a real good story. That's a that's a wonderful story. So as, as you're telling that story, I'm laughing. You know, as you said, he's like he's got a smack upside the head. Hey, hey, I'm trying to invest in your company, buddy. Right? Yeah, help me out here. So, um, are you the same way with people now? Do you do you take that kind of uh, I don't like call it the, the the Columbo approach or the Mr. Miyagi approach, where you, you're doing that, or, or you learn to be a little more direct with folks like that in terms of you know, hey, I'm interested. So the, there's no there's no questions about your interest in those folks. I would say as much as I practice patience in what we do in our business, in our product development, and how we try to achieve, and, and I practice that determination, um, I think it's the size of bet. So if I am working with somebody that I trust, I've probably built that relationship over a period of time. And if I know they're going to do a business, it's a lot easier for me to go, I'm really betting on Tim, for instance, which I did. Um, and I could write a little larger of a check. But if it's out of the blue, I, I'm probably a little uh, hesitant to write those larger checks for those investments. It would take me a while. And, I, and I've learned the hard way. I did bet on one business that went from zero during my initial investment to more than $3 million in sales in their very first year. And it was really exciting. And then one of the co-founders got involved in uh, something that took him out of the game. And that was a key player in that whole business. And that very next year, they probably did a million. And the year after that, they were at zero again. Uh, so the character of the entrepreneurs, of the leadership is key and critical. And you've got to make sure they've got what it takes to run a business. Um, that makes sense. That's good. That's good insight. It's good guidance. And it goes as, as you're sharing your story with us today, Ross. I mean, in terms of just how you do things, right? As you, you know, whether it be with the entrepreneurs to form those relationships or as you're describing what you did with those big companies. Again, you, you've all been all about those relationships and, and the people. So it doesn't matter how big or small the companies are. That seems to be a way that's, that's worked very, very well for you. And that would make sense to kind of do the same kind of thing with your, with your angel investing. Um, a couple of things I'll make sure that we, we get a chance to cover in our time here with you. Um, one thing that you mentioned that I think it would be helpful for people to hear about a little bit as well. You mentioned that you had helped get a couple of laws passed, right? And so uh, Jack is is our resident uh, uh, politician in terms of encouraging all of our all of our <laughs> the most clients. opinionated. That's what well, well, no, but in terms of encouraging many of our clients, especially some of our, our younger clients, Ross, to get involved, you know, to, to get involved politically and, so, mm -hmm. and things like that, and say. You know, and, and often they can just throw their hands up. How do I even start? You know, what do I do? You know, why does it kind of matter? But so, you know, for you to, to help get a couple of laws passed, I'm guessing you went through a lot of different stuff. And I'm curious kind of how that kind of came to be and, 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 and what the impact was for you and your business in terms of kind of doing something like that. Yeah. So we are very, very relationship oriented. Um, we're, we're cooperative with all political entities. So we don't lean, you know, this way or that way politically. But what we do is we always leverage, we always communicate. We communicate with our uh, uh, state elected officials. We communicate with our national uh, elected officials. And we'll just touch base with them uh, fairly regularly just to let them know where we're at, what we're trying to do and what we think. So one of the things that we were doing when we were looking for uh, sustainable plastics and sustainable energy with that new technology is it was algae based. Um, so algae is the fastest growing organisms creating biomass faster than anything else. Um, and it offers a, just a tremendous amount of opportunity. But we noticed there was a gap. If we decided to do algae farming in Ohio, for instance, we would be taxed as an industrial concern. Well, 
algae is not that, let's say, high of a value of a crop per acre. Therefore, you're going to get taxed like you're an industrial concern. Therefore, Ohio was never going to have any algae concerns. So we went to state legislators. We went to uh, the uh, Ohio Farm Bureau, and we talked about getting algae into the farm bill in Ohio so that you could do algae farming or even algae processing at the same tax rate as farmland. And ultimately, we got that passed. So we were the first state in the union that made algae farming on par with any other kind of farming. And I think the second state that followed suit rapidly after our bill got introduced and approved was Arizona. And I think there's been some others since. But if we were to move to a state to do some of what we plan to do on algal processing, again, our number one priority is the high value molecules that nature's made that nobody has access to. That we would want to make sure that state has that in their law so that it could be equal on the same uh, footing as any other kind of agriculture. And, you know, it's a logical thing, but if it's not specifically spelled out, you won't get that uh, advantage. So there's that relationship thread again, as you're saying, right? It's not like you just showed up one day and said, you know, give us what we need. It's like, hey, it's been, you know, you're doing those things purposefully. And I think that's, um, you know, many folks will will use phrases like working on versus in the business and things like that, 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 that people have all kind of heard and stuff like that. And so what does that mean? So you're giving these great examples of that, Ross, in terms of what's kind of going on, how you're out in front of stuff, right? And so uh, I think this is, this is a great place to kind of, to kind of help us kind of finish up here as you now are evolving into this biosourcer company, right? Let's talk a little bit about that in terms of what's kind of going on there. Because I know uh, we only have a few minutes left with you, you know, but, you know, and you can talk about this for hours, but, you know, this is something, this seems like this is your, this is your next, you know, 20, 30 years where we, you know, this seems to really get you excited, you know, uh, in terms of what's going on. So talk to us a little bit about what's going on with biosourcer and what you see there and what's happening. Yeah, it gets, it gets, even talking about it now, I get goosebumps. Um, And I've been at this for a while. So when you talk about the determination and that excitement, the simple understanding here is that when you look at therapeutics that are on the shelf today, where did they come from? A lot of people don't know this, but the vast majority, more than 50% of the drugs on the shelf came directly, indirectly, or inspirationally from molecules that are inside of microbes. Now let's understand how that's connected. In labs around the world, they grow microbes and then they can explore when they scale them up in quantity to see what kind of molecules are in there. All organisms can make drug-like molecules. Those microbes that are grown in the lab led to that greater than 50% we can only grow a little less than 1% of those in the lab. And in the 50s and 60s, when they focused on that, the problem they ran into is some of the same chemicals are made by some of the same microbes. So they kept running into the same thing. So they had to find another solution to get at nature's hidden secrets. That's ultimately where combinatorial chemistry came in ultimately genomics, metagenomics, synthetic biology, computational biology, and now AI. All of those are indirect. You don't get directly to nature's secrets. You have to use data, which is in limited supply, to try to figure out what's going on. That's why the cost of drug discovery and execution has gone through the roof. Uh, Combinatorial chemistry spent billions of dollars a year for 40 years and put one drug on the shelf. It's just (laughs) where we're at. So our approach was, why not go get the microbes directly from nature? If you can't grow them, go find them. Well, we ran into lots of problems with that. Ultimately, like I said, we got funding by ARPA, DARPA, US Air Force. Then we put 12 million of our own money into that problem. We've solved that problem. We can now go get the quantity and quality of unculturable microbes and get at the chemistry of that other 99 plus percent. 
That's why I get so excited because it will not only impact therapeutics, it will have a big impact on agriculture and other sustainability opportunities, as well as all the life sciences. This will be, in my mind, the next major effort to uncover the hidden secrets of life. And this time, it's directly. And it will allow filling in the data of all the indirect approaches. So ultimately, 10 years from now, I would guess that most universities, most life science research organizations are doing some level of mining the microbiome. Now, why is the microbiome so key? Well, the microbiome is the highest calculating power for different chemistry on this planet. Been around 4.2 billion years, outweighs all other biomass on the planet, if you exclude woody biomass. So it is low life cycles, changing, evolving, and doing things. It's had the opportunity to find out which chemistry in life works. That's why it's so critical and so important. So it gets very exciting to me, but when you do disruption, if any of your audience or any of you guys are familiar with Clayton Christensen, may he rest in peace, I believe he passed away in January. He wrote the book on the innovator's dilemma and disruption. And when you do something that nobody else has ever done, it is really hard to get those entrenched to think about doing it differently. So the nice part is we have first mover advantage. The bad part is getting people to invest in something nobody else in the world is doing is really tough. That's the disruption. Wow. Yes, it is. And that's, uh, it's always hard to educate that market like that. And, and, you know, but maybe what we've seen here in the last 18 months will help with that a little bit, Ross, in terms of people, you know, being a little bit more um, fast to move off what they've been stuck on for a little while, right? Hopefully we can kind of see this. And especially as we've been exposed to, obviously, um, most of us are not scientists at all, but we, we've become many scientists with all the things we're reading about, whether it be the, the things going on with the pandemic and all the drugs and everything else, right? So the fact that we've gotten as far as we have with 1%, to your point, if we can unlock the other 99%, that, yeah, the, 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 the future over the next several decades could be fantastic from that standpoint and uh, beneficial to everybody around, which is which is, which is Absolutely. But I think one of the things that we forget is that if you're in the life science industry, you ended up studying it for years, maybe up to a decade, got your PhD, worked as a postdoc, worked in academia, worked in the in, in industry, and you've narrowed and narrowed and narrowed your focus. Those individuals make the proposals to the executive management, we want to do this. So they put their whole career on the line to say, we're going to go do this. And it's always in the area of their expertise. So the challenge to a true disruption is getting people to understand it. And I love using the example of, of uh, Elon Musk and Tesla. When they said to the initially to the entire world, we're going to make an electrical vehicle that competes with the internal combustion engine, I guarantee you there wasn't an automobile company or an automobile engineer or an automobile executive or the investors in automobiles that were worried. They, they knew that couldn't happen. Well, it's been proven it can. And the same thing's true. I, I love using the example, and I know I got my iPhone somewhere, that 11 and a half years ago, when Steve Jobs held up the iPhone, do you think Nokia, Motorola, BlackBerry, Ericsson were least bit worried? They weren't. It was laughed off even by investors. It had no protection for the screen, and it had no keyboard. This is a non-starter with the consumers. The reality of it is, is people always miss true disruption. They're entrenched. And in this particular case, they're missing this massive opportunity because they're so invested professionally and dollar-wise in what they have already bet on. Therefore, they will ignore this disruption till they can. Now, we won't disrupt the industry itself. We'll create opportunities for the industry. And that's a big difference as well. 
Right. Yeah. The, what you're talking about again is going to help the yeah the, the, the launch of and giving them them more information to create those better drugs and yeah to be, be able to kind of do that. But I fully understand it's a, it's a great uh, a great summation, Ross. Well, this has been this has been uh, fantastic. This this hour has gone so go go by gone by so quickly. Why don't, we, why don't we twist Ross's uh, arm here a little bit to get him back? We don't do it on the spot here, but right. let's have it back again. What do you think? Love to hear you talk. I appreciate that, Jack, and I appreciate Adam. Uh, thank you so much for having me on this, and uh, I look forward to coming back. Excellent. Good. Well, it's been great. And uh, for listeners, thanks for, for joining us for another uh, episode of Dirty Secrets of Small Business. You can catch all of our shows if you, if you, if you miss some on our website, dirtysecretsofsmallbusiness.com. Uh, please feel free to reach out in between. We'd love to get your comments and thoughts. You can email us at radio at maximumvp.com or give us a call 877-849-0670. So that's our show for this week. Thanks again for joining us and we'll talk with you all next week. 